Anyone over the age of 20 can remember a world without internet. And since internet has taken on the world, every part of our lives seems to be constantly in flux. How we think, work, eat, sleep, exercise, create, and even fall in love have all changed dramatically. But the one thing that has remained surprisingly constant is how we travel. Cars have seen little innovations in a hundred years, except some recent efforts to make them a little more environmentally friendly. Roads, bridges, tunnels, and even airports are pretty much the same today as they were 10, 50, and 100 years ago. But that is all about the change. Popular culture has long been fascinated with the great potential that the future can hold. From the Twilight Zone, Brave New World, to the Jetsons, we have been envisioning flying cars and interconnected systems. While we still may be years away from teleportation, the future of human transportation as imagined by past generations is being built as we speak. So what does the future look like to us now? And are these innovations even closer to reality than we might think? I'm Adriel Labarsky. And I'm Danny Abrams. And welcome to Season 2 of RTP Stories, Smart Cities and the Future of Transportation. We spoke to a lot of amazing people while researching for this project, but perhaps no one person explained the gravity of our time better than Jim Trogdon. Jim is a former major general in the military, commanding multiple engineer battalions, building roads and bridges around the world. And currently, he's the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Transportation, and he framed it pretty well. First, I would say this is probably um, one of the most decisive times in transportation since the uh, invention of the Ford automobile. Whoa, as in the Model T Ford from over 100 years ago? Exactly. That's the sort of statement that got us thinking. Some of the changes we'll see are obvious, some aspirational, some clever, and some outrageous. So let's start with what we know and go from there. First, it's important to look at why we need to change. Some things are pretty obvious. Think about your drive to work this morning. How easy was it? Hopefully very, but for many Americans living in urban or suburban areas, the morning commute alone was over 30 minutes each way. 30 minutes seems like an average, not a terrible amount, but as we discussed in Season 1, if we were to cut that amount in half, we would save 150 hours per year of commuting time. That's time of your life returned to you for free. Additionally, all of those driving minutes combined produced millions of tons of toxic gases, contributing more than half of the carbon monoxide and nitrogen oxides in our world. And just to throw this number out there to get us thinking, a study recently conducted in Sweden found that if every car trip in Stockholm County that can be replaced by a bike ride of 30 minutes or less was to be replaced by a bicycle, toxic pollution would be reduced so heavily that over 449 years of life, of human life, would be saved annually in Stockholm County with a population of 2.4 million people. Now, imagine that same change, bike rides replacing cars in a place like New York City with a population of 8 million. That becomes a number so big and abstract, it's actually tough to fully comprehend what it means, but I know it's a lot, and I, I just don't like how it makes me feel. Yeah, it's kind of an inconvenient truth. And I know that Al Gore would probably not be happy knowing what could be done. So if Al isn't happy, we can't be either. When speaking with Joe Malazzo of the Research Transportation Alliance, he told us that their job is to represent business needs as they pertain to transportation. And right away, he pointed to fixing driving ease as key to improving quality of life. But he said something that we found pretty novel. Most travel that people do over the course of the day uh, is not commuting. I think the most recent numbers we've seen are about one in four trips are to and from work. 
which of course means three and four trips or to and from any other destination or for some other purpose. So while the commute is our default focus when discussing transportation, we need to think about moving around a city from every possible vantage point because it's the backbone of everything we do. That's why it's important to fix what we have today. So choose your reason, environmental, strategic, personal, or otherwise. But it's time to change. So we agree. It's important to change transportation. But then what exactly are we changing? The core of our transportation is built around the individual driver going somewhere in their car. This creates an obvious problem of congestion. We talked to Professor Nagui Rafael, an NC State professor and former director of the Institute for Transportation Research and Education. We were hoping for good news, but Professor Rafael felt otherwise. In a sense, what you see, what congestion is right now, is an equilibrium condition that commuters are not necessarily satisfied but can put up with. Scary, but true and well said, Nagui. So, we're working to think creatively and upheave the current infrastructure of minimally effective cars. And changes in transportation, they really mean changes in the core of how a city is built. John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft, the $6 billion ride-sharing app, once said that his mission is to change cities from being built around serving cars to serving people. Think about things like parking garages, which take up over 25% of Los Angeles' space. That's insane. 25% of our cities are taken up by buildings that hold empty cars. In some ways, that's just illogical, and we're working on fixing it. Additionally, infrastructure is expensive. Driving a car down the road isn't free. It's wear and tear and tax dollars that could be going towards education or building parks. Or getting all grandmother's cute puppies? Or knitting little hats for squirrels during the winter time? <sighs> yes, Danny. Or the squirrel thing. We're also working to prove information, more commonly spoken of as big data. As we stand today, we have very little actionable knowledge to work off of. Governments and businesses want to know more about our transportation habits. And putting aside the question of privacy for a moment, they probably should. Knowing how many people need to go where and at what times can help prioritize building new projects and do quick analyses to see if new initiatives are meeting key metrics like faster commuting times, less congestion, and happier citizens. Secretary Trogdon says there's a lot of information the DOT needs that they do not have yet. And they used to use some pretty... <laughs> archaic strategies to get that info. Much better than it was in the past when we were doing that purely with a survey. We'd stop less than 1% of the people and say, where are you leaving from and where is your trip going? With paper surveys reaching less than 1% of the population, you might as well just guess. So data helps the government make life better for its citizens. It makes our tax dollars go further. And governments know this. It's not like nobody's trying to fix these things. There are efforts happening all around the world, and there have been for a while. In some Latin American cities, for example, like Medellin and Mexico City, vehicle use is restricted according to license plates and days. So, if your plate starts with the number 1 or a 2, you can't drive on Wednesdays. If it starts with 7 or an 8, you can't drive on Tuesdays, and so on. Which sounds really cool, until we realize that many wealthy families actually get around this policy, by buying a second car, which then just exacerbates the problem. Then there is my favorite transportation policy in the world. There are great historic cities like Barcelona or Vienna that have limited or even removed car access in entire parts of their city to preserve history. There are places in the United States, like New York's Fire Island, which basically remove cars entirely, making the whole island accessible by ferry and traversable by bicycle. 
This makes Fire Island the most populous, truly car-free area in the United States. Hooray for Fire Island! And there's plenty of other examples around the world, but nothing really stands out. Hey, what about what we do in Denmark? Huh? <laughs> Is that my friend Sophie? How did you get in here? Danny let me in. Weird, but okay. Well, now that you're here and clearly excited, I'm totally surprised by the way, why don't you tell us about transportation regulation in Denmark? Here in Denmark, we instituted a very successful tax on owning cars, between 105 and 180%, depending on the cost of the car. Plus, gas prices are very expensive. In general, cycling is highly encouraged, especially in our capital Copenhagen. The entire city is designed around people bicycling. So, in Denmark, car traffic isn't as much of a problem as bike theft, but that's a whole other issue. Well, I was surprised to see you, but thanks for the update, Sophie. So, while some policies are in effect that work well for a small area, and others that seem to cause more problems than they solve, governments are trying to solve these issues and move us into the future. Then, there's the private sector, which bases its solutions less on policy and more on technology. Sharing economy is the buzzword we need to start with. That's right. We've all heard the big names in sharing economy, like Uber and Lyft, and many of us are probably some of the 40 million plus Americans using these services every month. But sharing economy doesn't stop there. Its flag bearers believe that it should be able to upend everything about how we get around anywhere. Why do I need to get a flight at the times they offer it? Why do I need to drive four hours for a trip to Asheville with friends? Why can't I catch a flight when I need it, where I need it to go? J.B. Atkins is CEO of Height, a service that's like Uber for small airplanes. And he believes we should be able to catch a flight from anywhere to anywhere in four-seater airplanes with professional pilots who have some free time. These trips can be just for fun, but they also offer a tempting alternative to rush hour traffic. Some people just want to use it to beat the traffic here in L.A., Santa Ana to Santa Monica. I mean, that drive could be a two-hour drive with traffic, and the flight's 11 minutes one way. This sort of service could have an enormous impact on our travel ability from any perspective. But more reliably on day-to-day, let's talk about the sharing economy of cars. These services are essential to today's inflection point of transportation as much because of what they're like today has what they will be like tomorrow. Today, they're partially responsible for fewer American households owning vehicles every year. Plus, according to 2012 research from the University of Michigan, at least a quarter of households were without a vehicle in eight major U.S. cities. Hey, Danny, want to play a game? Want to guess the cities? Sure, that sounds like fun. I guess I have nothing to lose. Off the top of my head, I might go with New York City, Washington, D.C., Boston, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Baltimore, Chicago, and... Flagstaff, Arizona? Unbelievable. Seven for seven, and you choked on the last one. It's Detroit, Danny, not Flagstaff. Ugh, of course it's not Flagstaff. Few things ever are. Regardless, these numbers matter, because they reflect an enormous change from our standard experience of getting around. If the ability to get a ride to anywhere from anywhere is now available with a few buttons from my smartphone, I might not need a car anymore. And if I and millions of others don't own cars, traffic decreases. And if that's the case, and we don't need to build extra lanes on highways anymore, or parking garages, well, to quote the Lyft co-founder once again, we can repurpose city space to serve the person, and not the vehicle. That all sounds great, but what about the complaints? While people in New York City might not own cars, there's also a ton of data to state that all of the unofficial taxis in the form of Ubers and Lyfts may not be the best thing in a super urban market. This really big topic piqued our interest, 
and we needed to learn more from someone at the source. So my name is Spiros Masado. I am the second generation uh, leadership in a family business named Queens Medallion Leasing. Queens Medallion Leasing, or QML, is one of the largest owners of taxis in New York City, which is itself one of the largest and oldest taxi markets in the world. So Spiros Masados has been plugged into this conversation for many years. Our first question was about regulation. While our modern generation often thinks of regulation as a bad thing, and Uber would certainly agree with you, Spiros lists a number of benefits to regulation. It makes sure that drivers, often immigrants and lower educated citizens, can make a full-time income from this job. Additionally, this regulation was actually good for the commuter because it emphasized safety. There's a direct correlation with the ownership of a car, ownership of a medallion, and how safe a driver is. So as these drivers were more experienced, spending more time on the road, and able to earn a full-time income by driving a yellow cab, uh, the number of accidents in New York City started to go down. So, according to Spiro, regulation is good in a difficult-to-maneuver market. Plus, when Uber and Lyft came to New York, there was a little problem in basic supply and demand. In this time, the number of total rides that actually increased uh, was not very substantial. But what we had was tens of thousands of drivers being added to the economy uh, over the course of a few short months. So there were some more rides being given, but not enough rides to warrant a, a doubling, a tripling, a quadrupling of the number of drivers for hire in the city. So what you had was a mass increase in supply and a fractional increase in the demand for rides in New York City. So while regulatory bodies permitted 13,000 taxis to be in New York City, the sharing economy, the private sector, brought almost 100,000 new cars into the city, creating an enormous traffic and congestion issue with limited upside. So clearly sharing economy will be a challenge to introduce to major cities. Making these cars self-driving would fix some of that, but as we'll talk about in the next episode, would come with its own share of troubles. So I must say, I'm stumped. How does the future of transportation even work in an urban setting? Well, what's the most advanced, complex, futuristic form of transportation your imagination can envision? Hmm, I don't know. Jetpacks? Giant genetically engineered pigeons with saddles? Flying cars? Clearly a fan of the Jetsons here. Flying cars are one of the most fun things of the future. And they're more than just a myth. They're relevant. Except not quite in the way we may have imagined them. The more realistic version of the world of air transport is less everyone has a flying car in their garage that take off and get to work on a la Bruce Willis and the Fifth Element, and more Uber for mini helicopters. And we're going to call these mini helicopters VTOLs. VTOLs? VTOL stands for Vertical Takeoff and Landing. Clearly a name thought of by brilliant scientists trying to speak to us regular people. These aren't a reality yet, but they're theoretically not too far off with over a dozen independent and well-funded companies working really hard on developing noiseless, energy-efficient, eco-friendly, and effective flying cars, VTOLs. And this is an enormous effort. Any movement that can get cars off the road and utilize three-dimensional space for transportation, like skyscrapers did for the home and office, could save our world millions of hours of congested commute. VTOLs are fascinating, but they're not here quite yet. Technological limitations means greater challenges in making these autonomous. Current regulation requires pilots to have over 500 flight hours, and battery technology is not yet developed enough to make these economically and practically efficient. One big, clear, and important barrier that needs to be solved is, as always in this podcast, infrastructure. 
Yeah, that's right. Our current infrastructure of roads, bridges, and tunnels, it wasn't built expecting thousands of mini choppers to be flying around our cities within a decade of their conceptualization. I mean, where would these VTOLs be stored when not in use? Some cities have helicopter pads, but they may not be strategically positioned for intra-city travel, and even if they were, equipping these pads with charging stations would be a gargantuan effort. There are theories about using the land near highways as storage, which certainly has interesting implications about the ease of access, but it's definitely going to mandate an infrastructure overhaul. And because this is such a big problem, lots of companies from Google to Uber are working on the technology and the regulation. But like Uber says in their Elevate white paper, it's going to take a massive collaborative effort to get this going. We couldn't get a quote directly from Uber, so we found Mary an Uber driver from Durham, North Carolina, reading directly for Uber's white paper published in October 2016. Uber will be reaching out to cities, vehicle manufacturers, prospective representative users, and community groups along with key business, infrastructural, and regulatory stakeholders to listen, learn, and explore the implications of this urban air transportation movement. In the coming weeks and months, we plan to delve into the political, policy, infrastructural, and socioeconomic issues that will need to be addressed. Thanks a lot, Mary. Good luck out there. So, flying cars, known more accurately as VTOLs, are an interesting effort. But not everyone is on board. Some believe that these are really fascinating possibilities that are fun to talk about, but they get sort of brushed off by folks like Joe Malazzo from the Regional Transportation Alliance. We may actually like the aesthetic aspect of keeping people on the surface of the Earth <laughs> traveling back that way rather than having our skies completely clouded. And Elon Musk, the famous founder of Tesla and SpaceX, he had a similar argument being interviewed by Chris Anderson at a 2017 TED Talk. There is a challenge with flying cars in that they, they'll be quite noisy. Uh, the, the wind force generated will be very high. Let's just say that if something's flying over your head, if there are a whole bunch of flying cars going all over the place, um, that is not an, exi an, an anxiety-reducing uh, situation. Um, you don't think to yourself, well, I feel better about today. Um, you're thinking, like, did they service their hubcap? Or is it going to come off and guillotine me as they're flying past? Well, that's a good point. Joe's plan is to improve on-land transportation. Elon's plan is to go underground instead of flying. That dude wants to build thousands of miles of tunnels under every major city. Regardless of the solution, we've got a long way to go. So let's see what else people are working on. Well, Danny, tell us about the funky stuff. In Israel, the development of the SkyTrain is gathering a lot of attention. This futuristic concept is like a personal pod-based metro in the sky. Pods seating two to four people fly at 160 miles per hour, interconnected and computerized to ensure safety. Each knows where the other is going, so they don't really have to slow down. You can snag one at any station, and these stations could even be inside of apartment and office buildings. They're faster, better for the environment, and they clear main roads for walking and biking. Plus, because all that's being built are just rails in the sky, the project could cost only $13 million, compared to a subway's excavation and construction costs for a similar distance at $160 million. And this is more than fantasy. It's already underway. A Business Insider article announcing the very first major SkyTran effort in Lagos, Nigeria was titled, A new self-driving monorail will chop two-hour commutes down to ten minutes. So the world is excited. While the prospect is thrilling, initiatives like the SkyTran and
autonomous cars, self-driving cars. Yes, I love self-driving cars. Which we'll talk about soon. <sighs> well, they have a ways to go before they can just be brought into downtown New York or even North Carolina's Triangle. It just wouldn't work to drop the technologies into cities we have today. What do they need to become reality? Well, that's what episode two is for, isn't it? Next episode, we're talking about the live, work, play sandbox of experimentation. And we're finally going to appease my pal Danny and talk about autonomous, self-driving cars. You promise? Maybe. Alright. Alright, fine. I promise. All that and more, coming up soon. Thank you to everyone who made this series possible. The theme music was written and recorded by Matt Phillips, Dylan Turner, and Danny Abrams at Sleepy Cat Studios. The interlude jams for this episode were provided by The Oblations, as well as Russell Davis. This podcast was produced by the venerable Danny Abrams. My name's Andrea Labarsky. Thanks for listening, and safe travels.